Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Benjamin Merkel. He is professor of New Testament and Greek at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the author or co-author of 40 Questions About Elders and Deacons, Going Deeper with New Testament Greek and Exegetical Gems from Biblical Greek. He's also the editor of Southeastern Theological Review. Uh, A new book came out called Discontinuity to Continuity, a Survey of Dispensational and Covenantal Theologies, which is our topic today. Thank you. uh, Thank you, Professor Merkel, for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Let's get to a couple of broad questions, if we will. First of all, why did you write this book? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, um, as a professor, typically we we write books where we think there's a need in the classroom. And... You know, I teach I teach hermeneutics, how to how to interpret the Bible. And this book was written for a second semester class where, you know, the, in the first semester, we learn about uh, the basics of hermeneutics, the big picture, you know, how to how to interpret a text, uh, the, how to interpret various literary genres, parables and prophecy and proverbs and so on. And with this second uh, semester, I thought, you know what, let's, let's do something different. Because what I found is oftentimes students, they, they, they know how to interpret an individual text, but sometimes they don't know how the whole Bible fits together. And so this book was part of that attempt to see how does the whole Bible fit together. And so... One of the things I'm doing, I'm trying to do with this book is to bring clarity to the differences between dispensational and covenantal systems, covenantal theology. Now, when we think about, let's think a minute for about a hermeneutical or, or a theological system. People, people ask, what is a theological system? Well, in a sense, everybody has a theological system, whether, whether they know it or not. Uh, it's how you understand the Bible fits together. It's God's plan for redemption. So you think about, you know, going back to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and the prophets and, and then Jesus. You know, how how does the Bible fit together? And our, our, our theological system then is how we view all of Scripture fitting together, culminating in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And, and, and part of that relates to God's plan for, 
for Israel and God's plan for the church. And so, as you mentioned, the the title of the book says uh, Discontinuity to Continuity. And then the subtitle, A Survey of Dispensational and Covenantal Theologies. Notice there's there's two different camps. There's two main camps. Discontinuity, that would be the dispensational side. And then there's continuity. That's more of the covenantal side. And so when people approach Scripture, some of them, you know, there are these two broad camps of dispensational and covenantal theologies. Dispensational theologies, they tend to uh, see more discontinuity in the Bible. And, and by that, I mean particularly the relationship between Israel and the church. And that's really a, a really a key issue when you're understanding the Bible and how it fits together. You know, how, how are we to understand the, the scriptures given to Israel? How do they apply to the church? Um, of course, the New Testament was written to the church, but how are we to understand the Old Testament? How are we to understand the Mosaic laws? And so uh, dispensational uh, interpreters, if you will, uh, will approach will approach scripture with a with a stance of discontinuity, saying, Israel is one entity, and the church is a separate entity. Yes, they're both part of God's overall plan, but they are, in one sense, distinct and separate. Whereas somebody coming from approaching Scripture from a covenantal viewpoint would say uh, there, there's there's much more continuity that the church and Israel are not separate and distinct. That the church fulfills promises given to Israel. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I use the analogy of uh, if, if you're if you're imagine yourself traveling through Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and um, you know you go from one to the other. You're 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 coming through the the Old Testament, about to approach the New Testament. A dispensationalist would see kind of a wall being built between the the old and the new, whereas somebody in the covenantal side would maybe see more of a more of a speed bump, if you will, where uh, yeah, there's something changed. We're in the we're in the new covenant, but there's much more continuity. And so, and so, what I'm trying to do in, in write this book in writing this book is to explain the differences between dispensational viewpoints and covenantal viewpoints. This was not something I invented or something new. This was not a new idea. Others have have done this in the past in order to advance this particular discussion. I, I think I'm thinking of a book that was edited by John Feinberg, which is very similar to where I got my title from. It's different. Uh, but the title of that book was Continuity and Discontinuity, Perspectives on the Relationship Between the Old and New Testaments. And so with this book, Feinberg he he edited this volume, and basically what he did, he, he got somebody from a dispensational camp, and then he got somebody from a covenantal camp, and they each would contribute a chapter on a particular topic. It could be hermeneutics, right? How do you interpret scripture? 
salvation, law, the people of God, the kingdom of God. So these two different groups presented their views and how they saw the Bible fit together. The, the reason why I wrote this book then is because, you know, what that book was written in 1988. And there are basically two positions that are being addressed, right? Dispensational and covenantal. But there are really there are really more than just two views. And more recently, there have been uh, additional perspectives or you might say um, tweaks on earlier or older views that have come out. For example, progressive dispensationalism. Uh, it was started in the uh, in the 80s and 90s as a distinct group, a distinct type of dispensationalism. And then even more recently, a particular viewpoint called progressive covenantalism. And so what I wanted to do then is in this book is to say there's a spectrum of different theological hermeneutical views. And I wanted to situate them on this on this spectrum going from discontinuity to continuity and clearly lay out these different systems of interpretation. So that's one of the reasons. Uh, another reason is maybe a little more personal. That's to, to bring clarity to, to our own individual views. You see, a, a theological system, these are constructed in an attempt to understand the overall Bible, the overall message of, of the Bible. And ideally, it's not always the case, but ideally they result from a faithful interpretation of Scripture. And so once we develop this theological system from the text, then this theological system will, will inform us and becomes a sort of presupposition to how we interpret the text. We, we want to make sure that we, we understand Scripture in a way that is uh, consistent and uh, and, and also what I'm doing here is I'm trying to get uh, people to be able to speak to one another and not speak past one another. You know, sometimes when we when we have a debate with somebody or, t or talking to somebody uh, regarding a particular passage, we, t we, we speak past each other. And, the, and, the, and part of the reason for that is, is we don't understand the theological presuppositions that that person has as they approach scripture. But if we understand different theological systems, then we, it will help us evaluate our own view, but it will also help us appreciate the views of others who we might disagree with, but it will help us better understand their view. And I hope also it will help us to appreciate their views as well. Yeah, you, you have then uh, a very clear, explicit structure for the book. You have your taxonomy. We have three dispensational and three covenantal theology, theological systems. And you run through each one and explain how each understands a particular hermeneutical issue. Uh, one of them is, is a, uh, uh, the status of the Old Testament prophets as saints. 
or, or, or you know, we could, we could pick some other issues, but can you give us an idea of how each one uh, addresses, uh, you know, the, one of the questions you have is, what is the kingdom of God? Do you, want, do you want to pick one of those and run through how the six understand that issue? Yeah, yeah. Let, let me let me uh, back up just a little bit and um, and clarify um, what what you're getting at here regarding the structure, because really the structure um, is really is really key to the book. As you mentioned, there are these six different main chapters, right? One for each of these theological positions, ranging from three different types of dispensationalism, classic, revised, and progressive dispensationalism. And, the, and those those follow historically, by the way. First was classic, then that was revised dispensationalism, and then later, as I mentioned, uh, in the 80s and 90s came progressive dispensationalism. And then you have the, the covenantal views, um, starting with progressive covenantalism, then covenant theology, then Christian reconstructionism. And so what I what I what I did here with each each of these chapters is I tried to address four key questions that can be answered and that could really um, give the essence of that of that theological position. What I what I found in some books where people where it might be an edited volume where where you get somebody to defend a particular view is that um, oftentimes they they they're not comparing apples with apples. In other words, Sometimes you get somebody using particular scriptures to defend their view, and then somebody else will use other scriptures to defend their view, but they're not using the same the same text. And so I wanted to this to be a controlled environment. And say, let's answer the same questions. Okay, let's answer the same questions. So the four main questions related to, relate to their basic hermeneutic. Uh, the second one is about the covenants. How do the how do the covenants fit together? The old and new. Uh, the third is the relationship between Israel and the church, and the fourth is the kingdom of God. So these these set the framework where every position then is will address these same questions. Now let's let's uh, get getting getting to the heart of your question. More specifically, let's let's look at one or two of these. So uh, for example. Let's take um, the relationship between Israel and the church, because this is this is really gets at the heart of a lot of what these these views, uh, why they're different. You know, uh, yes, their their hermeneutic is different. So a dispensational hermeneutic would emphasize a literal, a very literal or literalistic hermeneutic versus somebody more in the more covenantal camp may approach it with a more allowing for more symbolism and typology and so on. But when it comes to the relationship between Israel and the church, uh, this particular issue really is foundational. So one of the sub-questions under this question is, does the church replace or fulfill Israel, or are the two distinct? Well, again, a, a dispensationalist would say the two are absolutely distinct. Uh, you know, Charles Ryrie called it the the sine qua non, the the that which you know without this there would not be dispensationalism. That Israel and the church must be separate. And he said, the, when you uh, no longer take those 
as being distinct, then you no longer have a dispensationalist. Whereas somebody in the covenantal camp will see, again, more of that continuity and will say, well, um, they're the one people of God, the one plan of God. Yes, we're, we, we might be in a different covenant, right? Not the Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises to Israel. And so, you know, when another one of the questions re- relates to restoration promises, restoration prophecies given to Israel. And the dispensationalists would say those, those particular prophecies have not been fulfilled. They must be fulfilled. God is faithful. And so the only time that they can be fulfilled is in the future during a future millennium. Whereas somebody from the covenantal camp would say, no, actually, you know, employing more of a Christo, what they call a Christocentric or Christotelic hermeneutic, they would say, no, Christ is the fulfillment of those promises to Israel. And now as the church, we are united to Christ by faith. We become the children of Abraham. And so now those promises given to Israel of restoration are fulfilled in Christ and through him to his church. And, you know, when it comes to, uh, let's say, the kingdom of God, again, a a dispensationalist would say when Jesus came, one of the sub-questions is, did Jesus bring the kingdom during his first coming? A dispensationalist, especially the classic and revised versions, would say Jesus offered the kingdom, but because Israel refused the kingdom offer was withdrawn and the kingdom never came. Whereas somebody in the covenantal camp would say that the kingdom did come when the king came, but it didn't come in its fullness. And so it's the kingdom arrived, but it wasn't the the consummation of the kingdom isn't here. It's an already not yet. Uh, and, and again, we can go on and on related to things like the law, the, even, even the Sermon on the Mount. Um, some dispensationalists would, would argue that because the Sermon on the Mount is given to Israel under the Old Covenant, it doesn't directly apply to the church. And so somebody in the covenantal camp would say, no, you have a different position. They would apply that to the uh, to the church. Now, um, l- let me just give a little more information on, on, this, on this structure. What I did in each chapter in answering these questions is I, I uh, identified three key proponents for each of the different camps. So I, I won't go through them all, but just take progressive dispensationalism. I used the work of Craig Blazing, Daryl Bach, and Robert Sosey. I, I, so with each of these views, I, I found three key proponents and used their material primarily, not, not, uh, you know, not exclusively, but primarily. And then what I did is I, I had a proponent of each of these views read the chapter and sort of sign off on it and give me feedback to make sure I was accurately representing that particular view. So for the for the chapter on progressive dispensationalism, I, I had Craig Blazing read the chapter. He graciously did and, and gave me several pages of, of, of helpful feedback. And so for each of these chapters, my my goal in this book 
was is not to take a position or to argue for a position. It is an objective work. Um, as a matter of fact, on on social media, somebody contacted me relating to this book since it just came out, and uh, he posted this. He said, um, "I do wonder where you stand on it because you did a very good job at hiding your position." And then he continues saying, "I thought that." You very helpfully and objectively, object, objectively described each position well and in a fair way. And that was really helpful for me to see because my goal was to accurately represent each of these views. I'm not giving my position. The only thing I do is at the end of each chapter is I offer uh, three strengths and three corresponding weaknesses for each of these views. But it's it's intended to be objective. Well, this is one reason why I think it's a very good book to be assigned to an upper division, you know, religious classroom or to theology graduate school theology students in their first or second year, because it does lay out very clearly and systematically uh, what the different positions are on some crucial issues. You know, one issue that, that you also ask uh, relative to each of the six is, Quote, what is the proper role of typology? You acknowledge that typology can be abused, and then you also have good, you know, strong, well, well, hermeneutically well thought out typologies as well. W w why is typology an important distinction among these different schools of thought? Yeah, there, and there really is a there really is a huge difference. Um, and, and some of it was, when I went into this, some of it was a little bit unexpected. And what I found was for classic dispensationalists, they really were into typology. We might call it more um, symbolism, especially in the Pentateuch, things related to the temple, the, util the instruments in the temple, the tabernacle, even um, personages like uh, Abraham and Isaac. And so you find in the Schofield Study Bible, you find all of this symbolism, especially in the Pentateuch. And um, I was saying, wow, but when you read revised dispensationalists, they basically backed away from that. And, you know, they revised the Schofield Bible and they basically scrubbed all the symbolism out of it. I think there's a place where um, I think it's Ryrie said, um, there are seven types in, in the Bible, and that's it. Um, and so they were very, very cautious to embrace typology. And, and I think one of the reasons is because, you know, on the covenantal side, they're more likely to embrace typology. And, and, and one of the reasons is because they view, uh, that is the, the covenantal side, views, the, the, uh, views Israel as a type of the church. And so that's how you have the continuity. Whereas on the dispensational side, they want to keep Israel and the church separate. And so Israel is absolutely not a type for uh, the church in any way. And But ultimately, what I found is most, most people, even in most systems, recognize the validity of typology uh, because some prophecies, it seems that they're, um, the way that they're fulfilled, it's not merely a prediction and fulfillment. 
It's more uh, with, you know, with the type, it's a it's a historical event that was done in the past, something done in history. I mean, you have an escalation and fulfillment in in later on. Um, and for Christians, we, we understand that as being in Christ, being the fulfillment. And so the way that Jesus fulfills a lot of the Old Testament, uh, you know, if you read Sometimes we assume when it says this was to fulfill a particular passage of the Old Testament. But if you read the Old Testament, oftentimes it's um, it may not even be a prediction. And so fulfillment can be through typology, which uh, becomes very important if you if you want to understand the role of Jesus, how he fulfills the Old Testament typology then becomes uh, really essential. What is a uh, quick question here? What is the difference between a conditional and an unconditional covenant? Right. So with the co- with the uh, covenants, the reason that this particular question came up is that many take, for example, the Abrahamic covenant as being unconditional versus the Mosaic covenant, which is conditional, meaning that with an unconditional covenant, you know, God with Abraham promises to bless him, to make him uh, a father of many nations, to give him land, and so on. And essentially, you know, when that covenant was made, Abraham was asleep. God passed through the, the, the animals that were slain. And the idea then is that this was a, an unconditional covenant, meaning God himself will ensure that the covenant is fulfilled. He will meet the conditions of the covenant. A conditional covenant is usually looked at as a, the Mosaic covenant, which is, you know, uh, if you do this and if you obey me, you will be blessed. But if you disobey me and if you scorn me and don't, don't heed my prophets, you will be cursed. And, and so this becomes an important uh, feature especially on the dispensational side, because they argue that the Abrahamic covenant and some of these other covenants, if they're unconditional, that means they must be fulfilled, and they must be fulfilled as stated, and therefore God promised to Abraham and his descendants, physical descendants, a particular land, and therefore God uh, in the future, still will deliver on that promise, and um, usually seen as a future millennium, will bring Israel back to the land. So, the this idea of conditional and unconditional is uh, is really important. And, and one more further note on that: <clears throat> most groups would would agree that the Abrahamic, the New Covenant, the Davidic Covenant; these are unconditional. Essentially, even though there may be like with the Davidic covenant, conditional components, essentially the essence of it is unconditional versus the Mosaic covenant, which is seen as a conditional covenant. Except for the progressive uh, covenantal view, they're a little bit unique because they like to emphasize that all covenants are both conditional and have, have conditional elements. Uh, to them. Even the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants, there are conditional elements. Um, yes, God will ensure that those come to pass, but they 
they don't like the idea of, of calling those purely unconditional covenants. What another quick clarification question. What is, quote, census plenior? Yeah, census plenior. Yeah, that just means the, the fuller sense, um, a deeper sense, a spiritual sense, maybe a God-intended sense. And this usually comes up again related to the topic of typology, where um, some will argue that a scripture could have a, a census plenior, meaning a deeper, fuller sense than perhaps what was originally intended by the human author. And here we, we talk about the, the two authors of Scripture, right? You have the human component and then the divine component, the dual authorship of Scripture. But usually those who affirm census plenier are, tend to be on the covenantal side. Um, the dispensational side, they tend to be very literal in their interpretation. They get a little bit nervous about, as I said, typology. They're like, nah, yes, but no. Um, census plenier is would be a hard no, as they, they might want to put it, or as a, as a younger person might want to put it. But for those in the, in the covenantal side, they're more willing to say that there may be a deeper, fuller sense that the original author did not fully understand. And now that we have the full canon of Scripture, in, in retrospect, so to speak, we understand— now that the New Testament affirms this, we see that God intended something perhaps uh, beyond and above, not in distinction to, not contrary to, but imagine something, imagine along the same trajectory, say if, so if an arrow, if an arrow falls, it goes and it falls and it hits something, but imagine that arrow continuing to go. When it falls, that would be what the human author thought. But God intends it to go a little bit further and um, so that the blessings in Christ are beyond what even we could have imagined in the Old Testament. The book is Discontinuity to Continuity, a Survey of Dispensational and Covenantal Theologies. Professor Merkel, thank you for joining us. That was great. You're very welcome. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.